Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. We discussed his book, very interesting book, very important and taught, you know, very current book, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. That was on July 15th, 2021. His name is Dr. Eric Kaufman with two N's. But we're going to go back to an earlier book that he wrote in 2010. That title of this book that we're going to discuss is Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? Demography and Politics in the 21st Century. And he is the, Dr. Kaufman is the professor of politics at Birkbeck College at the University of London. And he has also written other books. One is Changing Places. Another is Rise and Fall of Anglo-America. And he can be found on, tw at, on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. And his website is www.sneps.net, S-N-E-P-S.net. So, Dr. Kaufman, are you there? I sure am. Great to be here, William. Awesome. Well, thanks for returning uh, to talk about this book. Really fascinating book. Uh, I think you're probably right that the it's, it's shocking, to surprising to think that fundamentalism is going to end up ruling the world. Can you talk a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because my I, I guess I got interested in... Um, uh, population shifts more in relation to issues around national identity and, and immigration, more of the more of the variety of what I wrote about in my recent book, White Shift, which is sort of my main academic background is in this area. But I sort of detoured to look at religion because I was interested to to look at the relationship between uh, religiosity and birth rates and fertility, uh, which in turn then shapes population level changes. Uh, right. Because in a way, the key to now that we've no, I won't say conquered mortality, we've obviously still got a pandemic and we have some people. But but by and large, um, mortality differences between societies isn't what's driving population shift. It's it's much more to do with differences in birth rates. And, and those actually, as we're finding, are increasingly shaped by uh, reli religiosity and theology. And so I was just sort of wanting to think through, okay, if we were going to spin this ahead um, multiple generations, what does this say for the future of a, of a planet in which much of the planet is got below replacement birth rates? And that's East Asia. Um, it's not just East Asia and Europe, but inclu includes North America now and also increasingly Latin America. So we have a large part of the world now that has, uh, is not replacing itself in a way. And so the question is, who are tomorrow's people? Um, and this is a question, by the way, that my friend Paul Moreland is asking in his book, Tomorrow's People, who are going to be the people who populate the planet in the future? And I guess I came to the to the view that um, uh, the religious are going to play a very important part looking long term, simply because of this growing connection between uh, population growth and religiosity with the secular, non-religious having a, a below replacement. Uh, fertility. And so can you describe what the kind of defined secularization and why people who tend to be more secular tend to not have as many children? Yeah, I mean, there are two definitions of, of secularism. I mean, one is separation of church and state, if you like, uh, which is more political definition. But the second one is uh, which Steve Bruce, who's a writer, who's a very interesting writer, talks about is that people be just simply becoming less religious, believing less, affiliating less, um, you know, no, no longer marking the Christian or, or, or Jewish box and instead marking the no religion box on the, uh, in a survey. So for example, so I think that's really what I, 
uh, mean by secularization is that second individual level meaning of, of the term. And so, so you have this, like there is the West secularized after World War II, but there's also this kind of return to fundamentalism in all in places all over the globe. Can you talk about the the problems with secularization and why fundamentalism is a response? Yeah, so I think it's generally recognized in the academic literature that fundamentalism is in some way at least a response to secularism. Uh, and in fact, if we look at the the trends in religious affiliation, uh, the stricter religions, the more, if you like, fundamentalist religions are doing better. I mean, even in Western countries. So, for example, Pentecostalist evangelicals in the United States, their member church membership is going to hold up a lot better than that of the more liberal mainline denominations. Let us say the Episcopalians or in Britain, the Anglicans or uh, or, or perhaps the traditional church like the Catholics in Spain. So all of those church, uh, the church memberships you just get by virtue of being born, you get through birth, uh, membership in a culture, you know, that kind of religion is is more likely to decline. People are going to switch to being non-religious, um, whereas the ones that involve a very strict religiosity, that could be ultra-Orthodox Judaism, it could be uh, Salafi Islam, it could be uh, evangelical Christianity, those are going to to do better. And so what you're getting is a hollowing out of the middle. You're getting people either going non-religious or going very uh, strict religious. Um, and that seems to be the master trend that we're seeing in the West. Um, and then, of course, you've got the, the non-Western world where there's very little uh, secularization and religious decline. Um, you know, if you take if you look at India, yes, it's become more developed and wealthier. China, it's become more developed and wealthier. Religion has has either risen or it has remained uh, where it was. So outside of the Americas and Europe, uh, you don't really see this religious decline much, uh, if at all. And then, of course, you've also seen religious revival in the Muslim world, the Islamic revival since 1970, uh, and the Pentecostal revival, which has involved different parts of the world, Latin America, Africa, and so on. All right, and there is a correlation between wealth and birth rates, correct? Yes, um, there is a correlation, uh, but it is, in, it is by far, you know, it's much more complicated than that. Um, so a country can become wealthier. I mean, if you take the Gulf Arab states, you know, some of the richest countries in the world, you don't see secularization there. So income per se is not really going to explain that much. Um, it, oh, by the way, the other thing is birth rates. Um, birth rates usually go down with with GDP per capita, but again, there's a lot of variation. So again, some of those wealthy uh, Gulf states would would have not high birth rates. Actually, I mean the birth rates have come down there, but it's not. There's a lot of variation within rich countries. Gotcha. So there is some kind of correlation, but I mean, you, this is very important because you, you refer to these, these demographics that are going to change inevitably as really kind of a hidden hand of history. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So a lot of uh, people who study history and they study sort of where society is going and they'll look at what's going on with new technologies and maybe new cultural ideas. Um, 
new political ideas, but they don't pay as much attention as I think they should to these slower changing, less glamorous, but ultimately very consequential demographic changes. Uh, especially if you look over multiple generations, even a relatively modest difference in birth rates, if compounded over multiple generations, can lead to a massive change. Um, and, you know, the the there's a book called The Rise of Christianity that says, you know, in the year uh, 30 AD, there was maybe 40 Christians uh, in the Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, with a uh, with a fixed rate of expansion based upon taking better care of their sick. I mean, this is Rodney Stark's point. I mean, he says that with a, a steady uh, growth rate due to taking better care of the sick, having more female converts and somewhat higher birth rate than other Romans, uh, by the time you get to the year 300, which is uh, when Christianity is instituted as the official religion of, of, of the Roman Empire, there are 6 million Christians. Um, we can see something of this pattern of demographic advantage multiplied over generations also in the growth of uh, the Mormons in the growth of the evangelical Protestants in the United States, there was a paper um, that said that showed that was three quarters uh, birth rate advantage, not large scale conversion from mainline to evangelical denominations. So that, those are just a few examples, really, of where this demographic advantage of sustained over generations does lead to really quite substantial shifts. And in the case of the evangelicals, they went from something like under forty percent to two thirds of the uh, uh, of white Protestantism in America between the early and late uh, 20th century. So several generations maintaining a one-child advantage is enough was enough to really change the um, the composition. Um, and so that's these compositional changes are are really important. And that you use that term endogenous growth sects. So like they're expanding through procreation, not as not necessarily as much as evangelization. Um, right. Yeah. And so, so sorry, yeah, go please ahead. continue. No, you go. Please. Well, no, just to say that, yeah, so I do then focus on some of these, uh, what I call endogenous growth sects. And this is a kind of model for a religious denomination where you don't focus on converting anybody. Uh, you focus on two things, high birth rates and retaining the children in the community. Uh, and groups like the Amish and Hutterites and the ultra-Orthodox Jews or the, uh, to some degree, the um, Orthodox Calvinists of, of the Netherlands. So these groups then are able to maintain some of the fastest, consistent year-on-year -year, uh, growth rates of all any religious denomination, uh, while other religious movements flare up and then fade away. And, and the ones that are based on this model seem to be very successful in maintaining these growth rates um, for long periods. The Amish have maintained this uh you know, doubling time in sort of 30, 30 years or so. They've done that for a century or more. If they keep that up for another uh, century, you know, by the time we're into the 2200s, there are going to be 300 million Amish. I mean, if they maintain that, and, and, and they have maintained that rate for a century. Now, something could change, of course. It's possible. Um, but I'm, all I'm saying is that if you maintain these, these kinds of rates and you maintain them generation after generation, you know, um, Pennsylvania, Dutch, and uh, Yiddish are amongst the fastest growing languages in the United States, not because a lot of new speakers are coming on board. It's all through uh, demography. So it's it's important to pay attention to the, the way demography can change society, even at the aggregate level. And Israel is, Israel is really the paradigm case for this with the very, very rapid expansion of the 
ultra-Orthodox. Um, if you take the first grade, the share of the Jewish first graders in the 1960s, it was maybe a few percentage ultra-Orthodox. It's now a third. Uh, and then, of course, they're, when they're adults, right? Now, of course, there's going to be some leakage to the mainstream, but it's still pretty low. Um, because if you leave the ultra-Orthodox, you leave your family, you leave everything you know. It's a much bigger step. So retention is high, birth rate's very high, and so the share of the population increases rapidly. And I think that it's an interesting way to look at all these groups, how the growth of the Amish, the growth of the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox will change the demographics, but also the culture uh, among the people that they change. I mean, it's hard. It's like, think about Israel. I think you said eventually... 70% of Israel will be ultra-Orthodox. Like, that is an incredible cultural change as well. Can you talk or expand more about how this will change culture? These yeah, so, so if you look at Israel at the population level, Israel as a whole, um, what you can see is that Israel has shifted culturally to the right to become a much more religious country. It was conceived of as a sort of almost secular Zionist society by the labor Zionist pioneers who um, actually broke with Judaism to some degree. Uh, Judaism, which was critical of this idea of um, incarnating the promised land in the here and now, they believe the promised land should only exist in the kind of hereafter. But um, bringing this vision of, of making Israel the territory of Israel, the, that Zionist vision was originally seen as a heresy by uh, religious Judaism. So originally, Israel was conceived as a relatively secular project. Um, and they kind of didn't think the, you know, the religious, the ultra, what was then the ultra-Orthodox, they thought of as just this relic that was just going to fade away. But of course, they then start to self-segregate and they start to um, have these large families uh, and retain the children and create this scholar society where the men remain at yeshiva and they, they aren't working uh, and women are encouraged, you know, essentially their worth is to some degree premised on how many children they have. So you get this new society forming and then you've got, you know, modern Orthodox, which is, you know, a very different kind of group, but still has some elements of that uh, Haredi religiosity, uh, and they've got intermediate level birth rates. So between the two of them, they really do shift the character of Israel. Um, and so you can see that Israel's moving in that direction of being more conservative and more religious over time, a very opposite trajectory to, for example, what we see in the United States or in European countries. And so people who assume that the inevitable tra tra trajectory is towards secularism and liberalism uh, need to, I think, understand that in Israel, the demography has made a big difference. Now, that demography also made a difference in America with the rise of the religious right, which is a significantly demographic phenomenon, too. And I think looking ahead in the United States, the rise of, um, you know, the Mormons, but the Amish, the some of these groups looking way, way, way ahead are going to have more of an impact in and, and we'll start to see arguably if this continues we could start to see uh the united states not this century but probably the century after move in the same direction as israel right? israel yeah can you talk i never had heard this term the quiverful and this kind of concept of fertility in the fun fundamentals can you ex expand upon that well yeah so you have a um, there is a movement a sort of neo 
Calvinist Protestant uh, fundamentalist movement um, called Quiverful, who uh, who have a very pronatalist theological you know belief system. So they are in in many ways uh, a new phenomenon. So they don't have the historical roots that that the Amish and the Hutterites and the ultra orthodox have. Uh, but their theology has many similarities. And so if they are coalescing as uh, a, yet another one of these endogenous growth sects through retention of children and through high birth rates. So their view is that they look at passages in the Bible that encourage fecundity um, and that, you know, blessed is, is he who has a full quiver of children. You know, the, if, you know, given that that's their focus uh, and the women are, um, you know, into the same kind of things that the Haredi women are into, that you're, you know, is God favoring me by giving me many children? The number of children I have is the degree to which God is favoring me. Those who can't have children, I mean, they believe this is, I mean, this is a catastrophe because it means they haven't been chosen. So when there is this kind of um, Calvinist predestination kind of approach to to theology, but it's very much tied in with uh, this idea of, of, reproduction and that ultimately those who reproduce will inherit the earth. Uh, That's like that in Mormonism. In Mormonism, the more kids you have, the more spirits you're incarnating. And so you're creating kind of like your own little kingdom too. So it's yeah, like the it's pro fecundity, right? Right, right. Explicitly so. And and that's what's interesting. And so I think now with the Mormons we do see I mean there are people who are arguing that in fact you're seeing more uh, apostasy and, and 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 decline. I mean, a lot of the data that we see just seems to show that wherever the American fertility trend goes, the Mormon trend is a little under twice uh, as as high as whatever is going on in the mainstream society. And and I I haven't seen data yet that would contradict that. So, you know, despite your you you know these reports of large scale defections and and secularization and especially when we look at the heartland areas of Utah and overspill into Nevada and Idaho. And, and so the question then is, well, in that heartland of, of Mormonism, are we seeing um, secularization? And I think the, the data isn't there to contest that yet. I mean, the Mormons are, of course, the most modernized of these groups, and they participate very heavily in, in mainstream society, which would make them more susceptible to being to, to the forces of secularization. So I'd say the jury's still out on what's going to happen there. Right, much different than the Amish who are totally, yeah. or even the Herodim, I, my understanding is that they're very insular as well, even yes. in, in, yeah. in Israel. Um, maybe we can talk to something I don't really know. What do you, what's your kind of view on the kind of demographic view of the, of the continued expansion of Islam and how that will affect our world? Well, so... Islam actually, I mean, there has been a decline in the Arab world, the Arab part of the of Islam, which is kind of the core area for Islamic trends, has seen a substantial fertility decline, um, more so in North Africa and the Gulf Arab states than in, say, Egypt. Um, so it depends on the country, but there has definitely been a substantial drop in birth rates in the Arab world. Uh, and also some of the large Muslim countries, Indonesia and India, have also got uh, lower birth rates as well. So I think that the, the, the sort of very rapid growth in the share of the uh, world's population, I think from something like 12.5% to 25% between 
let's say 1950 and 2050, that's sort of time period. I mean, I think that it's not going to go much above the 25% of the globe. Um, so I don't think we're going to see this demographically surging Islam. Um, I think that in certain European countries too, you can see those Muslim birth rates have come down a fair bit. Um, sorry, just ignore that. <laughs> That's okay. um, but um, yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, but Don't yeah. worry about it. My cats are bothering me. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I think that is the trajectory in European countries. I think you're going to see an expansion of the Muslim share up until 2050, but I don't think you're going to have, we're not on track to see a majority uh, Muslim Europe I, in Western Europe. I think the numbers were, are going to kind of settle out at around in the most Muslim countries, Sweden, Britain, Netherlands, uh, France. It's, it's looking like 2060, it's sort of around 15 to 20% uh, up from numbers like five to eight percent. So, so there is going to be a significant growth, but I don't think it's going to be uh, leading towards majority uh, Muslim uh, Western Europe um, would be my view on that. Um, and then uh, just thinking more broadly also, I mean, immigration, uh, what you see with immigration is that people are not just coming from developing parts of the world that are not white and Christian to white Christian or white secular societies. So there is an ethnicity or an ethnic change that immigration brings. But what people lose sight of is in, on the back of ethnic difference comes religiosity. And so it's also a migration of religious people to secular societies. Uh, London, uh, any immigration gateway city in Europe generally will be more religious than the, the hinterland. London is the most religious part of the United Kingdom. Why? Well, if you look in the churches, they are majority uh, immigrant or non-white. And so uh, there's been a kind of revitalization of Christianity through uh, African and to some degree East European immigration. Um, and so that's, that's part of the story as well, is that you can see uh, demography resisting secularization uh, in these gateway immigration cities where the the religious immigrants are moving into a secular society and keeping it, keeping religion. And eventually that will lead to an increase in religiosity because the children of the immigrants don't really become non-religious unless they're Christian immigrants. Uh, so, but even there, I mean, African Christian immigrants are less likely to, to lose their religion. Uh, their children are much less likely to become secular than, let us say, um, white East European Christian immigrants or even Afro-Caribbean Christian immigrants. And, and so, and then of course you look at the non-European groups, Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, uh, there's very limited religious loss in the second generation. So you've got immigration of religious people, retention of religion in the second generation, and that actually leads to a kind of demographically induced return of religion as well. And so this is another factor in the, the return of religion to Europe is this immigrant-led religiosity. Right. So just because there's immigration or ethnic differences doesn't mean that there's more. It's the opposite. You're not getting secularization. Secularization. No. You're getting Quite the reverse. In fact, yeah. the ethnic the ethnic difference protects the religion from decline because being Muslim is sudden is it's seen as kind of cool amongst the young generation that it's an identity statement. If you're Bangladeshi or Pakistani to say, you know, I'm a Muslim, 
it's not some sort of fusty old thing your parents or grandparents did and with with old people in the in the pews which is one of the reasons why christianity is seen as quite uncool amongst say european youth uh certainly mainline christianity um whereas if you're ethnic minority then then your minority ethnicity and that difference protects your religion as well from secularism and so for both of those reasons i think we're we should expect religion to return in some sense in europe it's really fascinating. And do you find among the Muslims that the tradition of four wives when they move into, say, Europe or the U.S., is that tradition declining? Is that I mean, because if you're stating that the Muslim demographics are not increasing, is that because that kind of tradition of four wives is in decline? Well, there's only ever a small number that 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 do maintain that okay. here in, in, in Europe. Um, it's only, you know, a subset that ha now, of course, it's a significant subset who, for example, engage in cousin marriage, uh, in in arranged marriage, and so on. Um, particularly, uh, a significant portion of the Pakistani and Bangladeshi uh, population in Britain that come from rural, very traditional regions of their home countries and maintain these uh, cousin marriages and 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 those those links. So there's where you would find, I think, some of the things you're talking about, although I'm not aware of the, the four wives. I don't think there's much polygamy. I mean, I think it's mainly a question of having very traditional gender roles uh, and attitudes. I think that's more, more of the kind of thing that, that one sees. But there is a spectrum. I mean, amongst the Muslim population, you have some that are more modern uh, and liberal type of Muslims. And their, uh, their Islam might be more surface. Uh, they be, might be more likely to intermarry. Once you get intermarriage, that's when you get some secularization. So uh, the offspring of a Muslim, non-Muslim marriage would be much more likely to shift to saying they have no religion than anyone whose both parents are Muslim. Um, and it's interesting. You can sort of get a sense of this partly through the British census, which, which has a question on religious affiliation. I mean, the number of people who said they were Muslim in the 2001 census, but said no religion in the 2011 census is, is, is really small. I mean, it's kind of like on the order of maybe 1% or, or at most 2%. So it's very, very limited change. But there, but the direction of travel is ever so slightly in that direction of religious loss, even amongst Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs. But it's just very slow. So do you believe that in the West, in the UK or the US or Europe, do you think that secularization is going to be predominant or a more larger return to religiosity or even fundamentalism? What do you think? How do you think that that will turn out? Well, yeah, I think we have to distinguish between the, the near term, like the period from now until 2050, and then the longer term, which is post-2050. And, and I guess my view on the near term uh, is if you take, Europe, particularly Catholic Europe, you're going to see continued religious decline, secularization in the U.S. as well. Uh, I would say that would be the master trend uh, up until about 2050 or thereabouts, which is when some of these demographic factors, which in the case of the U.S. and Europe is mainly going to consist of immigrant, uh, immigrant religiosity, immigrants bringing religion in to a more secular uh, environment. I mean, that will be the main driver of the demographic return of religion. The other driver will be very low 
birth rates amongst the unaffiliated non-religious population, which is generally, I mean, those birth rates are any running anywhere from about one to 1.5 children per woman. I mean, in, there was a study in France that showed about a half child advantage between somebody who said they had no religion, you know, white French women who say they have no religion versus white French women who say they are Catholic uh, was a half child advantage. In other cases, it's only a quarter child, but those advantages do start to add up over generations. Um, so I would say, and also the fact that you tend to get rapid religious decline early in the secularization cycle when people start to leave religion in large numbers. That's happening in the U.S. Happened in Protestant Europe, like uh, Lutheran countries, Britain, etc. It happened earlier in the Protestant countries. It's now happening in Spain and Italy and so on, in the Catholic countries, Ireland. So that's where we see we no longer see religious decline really in the Protestant countries of Northern Europe, um, but we are seeing continued decline in Catholic countries. But at some point that flattens out. At some point the people who are going to leave and who are only Catholic because it was the thing you did socially, they're all gone and it's down to that core of believers. Once that happens, the decline flattens out. And that's what's happened in Germany, Scandinavia. Then from then on, I think the demography becomes more important. And so I would have thought in Northern Europe, you're going to start to see the return of religion sooner than in Southern Europe, where secularization still has some uh, years to run. And the U.S. too. I think the secularization is still new and it's going to run for uh, some decades, but then eventually it plateaus and then, you're, then the demography, I think, will kick in. Longer term, the demography, I think, is going to be the most important thing. Uh, in the short run, you know, I think switching out of religion will be more important. Well, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting if we lived another hundred years, <laughs> you're saying the whole structure of these societies due to demography. I mean, even the, the short term here in the U.S., I'm 52, just due to migration, the demography is, uh, has changed rapidly. So a lot right. of these things will be different in a hundred years. Really interesting book. Congratulations. Where's the best place for people to, uh, actually, is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap this up? No, really. I mean, I think, you know, some people have said, you know, where where does it end? And I wrote this book and it was, you know, back in, in yeah, 2008, oh, sorry, 2010, 11. Um, some people said, well, you know, is it simply the case that these endogenous sects will just take over and what will stop them? Right. So what might what might lead to the Haredim not taking over in Israel or and, and I think one of the things that that we see. In, in an authoritarian society like China, the Chinese will tell the Uyghurs how many kids they're allowed to have. You know, in an authoritarian society, uh, there isn't an advantage really to being a high fertility sect because the state can simply come in and tell you how many kids you're allowed to have. Now, so that is, I wouldn't say China will be taken over by fundamentalist religiosity. Uh, Israel, the question is going to come down to how liberal a society is. A liberal, multicultural society, that is the ideal environment for strong religion to take over, um, whereas the authoritarian environment is much less friendly. And in fact, you could argue it's the reverse. So a lot depends on what happens to the political uh, mainstream culture in these societies, right? And whether they're willing to intervene in the, uh, the processes that are leading to these groups to expand. Right. And some, I mean, I think that Putin got involved in their demographics. They said they weren't having enough kids. So he was doing all kinds of stuff to try to increase the fertility rate. So you might see those types of things in different parts of the world. You know, I, 
I mean, so it'll be very interesting. And uh, where's the best place for people to obtain your book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? Well, I think unfortunately, um, the only way you can probably get it now is through is on is online and through. I mean, I don't know if it's still listed on Amazon. <laughs> it is. I, I was, just I just bought it, so I got oh, it. Oh, good. Okay, fine. Because some someone had told me that it's out of print. I can't remember if it is, but yeah, then, the Kindle. Then to, I, the Kindle. I would say go to Amazon or um, yeah, you have to probably get it from a used bookstore or on Amazon or electronically at this point. Um, but. And, uh, and the best place to, if somebody wants to reach out or contact you, is your website, snep, sneps.net. Is that correct? Yeah, either you can, you can do it either through Twitter or through, uh, you know, I have my email, which you should be able to find um, either at the my SNAPS website or or just Googling me. You should be able to get that. Gotcha. And it's Kaufman with two N's. It's K A F M A N N. Dr. Eric Kaufman, title of the book again is Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? Demography and Politics in the 21st Century. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, William. Thanks All for right, having me. All right, bye-bye. All right. You can, yeah, hold on. All right, so that,